Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. And welcome to New Books in Native American Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, John Cable, and today I'll be talking with Michael Wicken about his fascinating new book, Seeing Red, Indigenous Land, American Expansion, and the Political Economy of Plunder in North America, from UNC Press. Against long odds, the Anishinaabeg resisted removal, retaining much of their land in the Old Northwest, what's now Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Their success rested partly on their roles as sellers of natural resources and buyers of trade goods, which made them key players in the political economy of plunder that drove white settlement and U.S. development in the region. But as Michael Witkin demonstrates, the credit for native persistence rested with the Anishinaabeg themselves. Outnumbering white settlers well into the 19th century, they leveraged their political savvy to advance a dual citizenship that enabled mixed-race tribal members to lay claim to a place in U.S. civil society. Telling the stories of mixed-race traders and missionaries, tribal leaders and territorial governors, Wiccan challenges our assumptions about the inevitability of U.S. expansion. The book is deeply researched and engagingly written, and it contains insights whose bearing on contemporary American society, I think, will become clear over the course of our conversation. Michael Wiccan, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Hello. Thanks for having me. So before we discuss uh, your new book, Seeing Red, can you describe how you became an historian and how your earlier work led you to this point? Uh, well, I'm a citizen of the Rickliffe Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe. And um, I, I think the thing that kind of drove me into history, my part stemmed from, from that family history, but also really sort of seeing in the in the late 80s and early 90s um, people in the Great Lakes beginning to engage in a sort of fight for exercising treaty rights, specifically around harvesting re- resources, spearfishing. And it became this hotly contested issue where, where citizens in north of Wisconsin were uh, alarmed at Native peoples having rights that it sort of superseded their own or existed outside of rights that they perceived should have been available to everybody. They didn't see that there was a special um, place for these people in the Great Lakes for the history uh, that that encompassed. And so that that kind of glaring misperception between the sort of lived experience of people who grew up alongside Native people in the Great Lakes but couldn't see them as integral not only to the region's history but to U.S. history really made me want to go back and try to sort of recover that and make it more accessible uh, in terms of uh, thinking about Native history and American history as being deeply intertwined. Um, so that that kind of experience with this kind of protest and encounter um, 
really contentious protests in, in the 80s and 90s in Wisconsin and the Great Lakes uh, prompted me to go back to grad school, and here I am today. And what about your your earlier book, uh, Infinity of Nations? Can you can you just uh, briefly talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, that's actually kind of an outgrowth of part of this thing. This this idea about recovering a, a, a this deep history that Anishinaabe people have in the Great Lakes was kind of the quest. I didn't see that reflected in a lot of texts, um, and so I. I, I uh, set about trying to sort of recover that, figure out why that was missing. And in part, it's because it doesn't fit with a sort of standard east to west discovery narrative um, that you can find in a lot of the sort of early North American history. Uh, but there's actually this deep history and there's great archival resources uh, for somebody who's doing, doing historical work. Um, and so the first book that I wrote explores this sort of history of the Great Lakes, which is really an Anishinaabe history. Um, and it's explored through the lens of the interactions between people uh, from Anishinaabe peoples in the Great Lakes and their interactions with people of the French Empire. Uh, the empire claims uh, most of North America from the eastern seaboard through uh, the St. Lawrence River Valley through the Great Lakes out to the Mississippi River as part of New France. Um, but in fact, their empire is really sort of more of a, 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 a mutually dependent relationship with Native peoples who are engaged with various, mem- various members of the French Empire in, in the global market economy that was a fur trade that was a really important um, sort of part of the political economy of North America and, uh, during the early colonial period, during the early ages of empire. And so the book explores that and explores how you really can't understand the French Empire and its sort of emergence and struggles with British colonies without thinking about this larger global fur trade network and their reliance on a large network, political and economic network of native peoples that made the French Empire possible. Uh, And the book explores that, the primacy of native people and native politics in this early period and how this really survives through the collapse of the French Empire onto the beginning of uh, the creation of the American Republic. So let's move on to seeing red. Uh, we're, we're now a couple of decades into guess what I see as a still growing trend in American historical scholarship of using settler colonialism as an interpretive framework for understanding U.S. history. And your introduction and first chapter deal in part with how you see settler colonialism unfolding in the old Northwest. But before, before we really flesh that out, just a quick state of the field question. Is this still an interpretive framework or is it more or less the new normal, particularly for histories of American expansion? Uh, it's a little of both. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly a new normal for people who are thinking about native studies and native history. And it's really been, as you said, the last decade, decade and a half, this has become a really important framework. But having said that, it's still, uh, I think there are still large uh, pockets of, of scholars who who do early America who are um, not used to thinking about uh, the U.S. post-revolution as a colonial power of any sort. So simply the idea of attaching this framework can still be unsettling for, for more traditional scholars, maybe. People who are focused on kind of colonial development, early revolution, think about the American Revolution as this sort of uh, post-colonial uh, endeavor by the early American Republic. In that sense, uh, it's been important for people to think about Native history, but there's still a body of scholars that um, haven't really embraced it entirely. So throughout the book, you you discuss the political economy of plunder. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean there? Sure. Uh, what you know, I think that the United States is 
aspirationally a settler colonial power. And it might help to start with, with what I mean by that. Uh, you know, traditional colonial power is an outside power that comes in and subordinates an indigenous population in order to extract resources uh, for the metropole, for the mother, the, the, the mother country. And that colonial power imagines a relationship with the subordinated indigenous population as kind of an ongoing thing, a permanent thing. Um, you can think about the, the British in India. Settler colonialism is, is a different form of colonialism. It's a different mode in which the outside power comes in and imagines a relationship with the indigenous population where they imagine the indigenous population uh, being eliminated. They want it to go away or be absorbed. Um, this is what Patrick Wolf, the anthropologist, called the logic of elimination. That is, the settler colonial power wants to replace an indigenous population with a settler colonial population. Um, and if you think about the United States, the, the Republic is born in partly out of this idea that, that in coming to North America, uh, settlers were moving into a new world. Uh, that new world they imagined is uninhabited or unsettled. Uh, mm-hmm. They knew that there were Native peoples there, but they didn't sort of recognize Native peoples of having established legitimate societies or governments. And so they were able then to extrapolate from that sort of misconstruing of Native society as Native peoples not having taken possession or ownership of the land. Um, early colonies were founded on this precept. That's what the right of discovery was about. Uh, the United States, the Republic, imagines itself uh, sort of expanding into Western territory that's occupied by Native people but hasn't been incorporated into a sovereign entity like the United States. Um, and so I think the, the America as a settler colonial power aspires to sort of move out into the West and kind of displace, eliminate, absorb native populations and replace them with a settler colony. Um, and what they find, in, in, what the Republic does in places like the old Southwest is that it, it particularly where, where there's a sort of boom in cotton production, that there's a desire for that land and to transfer that land into the possession of white settlers who want to produce cotton because it's so immensely profitable, that there's a, a really a big push to settle that land, to, ex, to expel native people, to, to sort of colonize that land, incorporate it as settler uh, estates into the Republic. And in the old Northwest Territory, uh, the sort of desire to sort of replace the settler pop- uh, the indigenous population with the settler population uh, isn't quite as successful uh, in places like Ohio or Indiana or Illinois uh, that um, are territories and then states that are connected by the Ohio River to the Mississippi and then therefore to American markets in St. Louis, New Orleans. It makes sense to sort of have this commercial economy to have agricultural settlements that would produce uh, export crops for sale to an American market. But for places farther north, like Michigan, what would now become Wisconsin, uh, it's less possible to settle those places and integrate them into the market economy in the United States in the period of the late 1700s, early 1800s. And so the U.S. ends up getting involved in, in, in something that looks more like a traditional colonial enterprise, an extractive industry largely still focused on the fur trade, where you have a sort of subordinated indigenous population that you are utilizing as a labor force to extract uh, a commodity, in this case, processed pelts, uh, in order to make, make money. And this is the sort of kind of balance between settler colonialism and colonialism that gets struck in North America, and that in particular unfolds in the Northwest Territory. So while we'll probably get into this a little bit uh, more later in the conversation, just in broad strokes, how did the political economy of plunder help expose the uh, sort of malleability or, or instability maybe of, of U.S. American settler notions of race? 
Hmm. Uh, that's kind of tricky. I, I, I think that, well, part of what happens when I, I guess I should explain political economy and plunder a little more clearly. Um, the United States, when it inhabits, when it, when it moves into the Northwest Territory, as I mentioned, uh, expands pretty rapidly into places like Ohio and Illinois that make sense in terms of incorporating them into the economy of the U.S. Places like Michigan or Wisconsin, where it makes less sense, they are slower to incorporate that territory. Um, they don't, therefore, uh, press the native population to accept the removal. Um, and what they do want, however, is is to sort of extinguish native title in order to bring that territory into the public domain in the United States with the hope that they will eventually settle it. So whereas uh, the U.S. sort of is able to sort of enact partly through coercion, uh, partly through coercive treaties, partly through warfare, the, the sort of removal of native people from Ohio and Michigan, they not only can't affect that removal, they find that uh, negotiating treaties to extinguish land title um, ends up being quite lucrative, and that's the political economy of plunder. So they ex- execute a series of treaties, say Michigan Territory alone, uh, where they will extinguish title to land. Uh, they will promise uh, an annuity that's an annual payment to Native peoples for the extinction of title, for the recession of claims of ownership for that property. Um, and then that annual payment will be split between cash payment and provisions of goods and services. So if they promise 40000 half of that might be in cash and the other half might be in goods and services. And the annuities usually lasted for periods of 20 years. Uh, but what would happen is not only um, that the title was extinguished and the land was therefore transferred out of native possession and brought into a public domain where the federal government and the state government could make money off it by selling it through the Northwest Ordinance to settlers as uh, homesteads the, uh, under the Northwest Ordinance, uh, kind of 160-acre square units at $1.25 an acre. Um, they would make money off that, but the annuity payment process that was intended to compensate native peoples usually actually tended to put money into the hands of other settlers, colonial officials, Indian affairs officials, um, because people in the fur trade, when those payments were made, would claim that they were owed debt left over from the fur trade that hadn't been paid. And so in most cases, an annual cash payment, as much as 90% of the cash would go to uh, uh, fur traders who would claim that it was owed to them by debt. So that cash would not by and large make it into the hands of native peoples, but into merchants and Indian agents and people associated with the fur trade who would then use that to invest in their own mercantile business, their fur trade business. Uh, they also would make money in the provision of goods and services, the, the other part of the annuity payment. Uh, that is, you know, $20,000 say in cash, but then $20,000 in foodstuffs or uh, provisions like uh, woolen cloth or steel traps or copper kettles. Uh, those were the kinds of things that the merchants involved in the fur trade uh, would sell to the U.S. government to be given out uh, as part of the annual uh, payment for an annuity for a treaty. So you think about that, the, the people associated with the fur trade and also with territorial settlement, uh, acting as Indian agents or interpreters, uh, or associated with the needs of the fur traders would claim large chunks of the cash payment and then also make more cash in paying off the goods and services portion of the annuity payment. And so this became a way in which the existence of Native people in a subordinated sense um, engaged in a treaty process where they weren't removed, but in place on a reduced homeland uh, produced a sort of cash economy that made uh, people in territories like Michigan, later Wisconsin, quite wealthy. This, in fact, became the way in which 
uh, economic development was sort of capitalized in territories like the Michigan Territory. Um, and this political economy of plunder uh, was so lucrative that unlike places in, say, Alabama or Georgia, where settlers really wanted to expel Native people, uh, in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, the settlers wanted Native peoples to stay because there was a lot of money to be made uh, with their presence in the ongoing relationship with the federal government, the state officials, and Native people. And again, that's that's sort of where you're making a distinction between um, specifically settler colonial and colonial um, relations. And also, I, I did want to pull a quote really quickly because you you summarize this really well. For those with a copy of the book, it's it's 148. Um, you write that increasingly, quote, increasingly tied to the federal government through annuity payments rather than alliance, the political leadership of Native nations in the Northwest saw their influence eroded. And with their annuities plundered, they saw their people become impoverished. Um, so yeah, that's so. Thanks for thanks for running through that. Um, just to to move on to chapter two, uh, tell the story of of the conversion of indigenous homelands into American settler homesteads. You home in on the story of of a settler named John Tanner who ended up moving between indigenous and settler communities and uh, indigenous and settler identities, I guess, too, at a pretty volatile time. Can you talk a little bit about who he was and how his life sheds light on the story that you're telling here? Sure. This is an amazing story. Um, John Tanner, also known as Shashawa uh, Vanessa, which is a Ojibwe word for the swallow. It's a name he's given uh, when he's adopted by an Ottawa woman, Anishinaabe or Ottawa peoples, Ojibwe peoples, and Potawatomi peoples. And around the 1790s, um, John Tanner moves into the region that would now be Kentucky, Ohio, the borderland, say, just south of uh, what would become the Michigan Territory, moves into that region with his father, who's a settler. Uh, you could think about this, these are the settlements that are made famous by Daniel Boone. And these are also really volatile settlements because they're on uh, territory that, that – um, his native territory uh, that was ceded to native peoples at the end of the Seven Years' War with the Royal Proclamation by the British, ceded again to native peoples uh, after the Treaty of Paris that settled the revolution, um, but that was sort of under contention in terms of, uh, as I said before, the U.S. kind of having feeling like they had a claim to it. And so you, uh, because they didn't feel like the the people who in that region would have been Shawnee and Delaware um, had established a dominion or proper sovereignty over their territory. So settlers would move in feeling like they had a right to settle what they thought in their perspective was on unsettled land. Uh, this led for, to a really volatile situation. And John Tanner, named after his father, John Tanner Sr., is kidnapped in this warfare and brought north into the Michigan Territory and adopted uh, into an, uh, an Anishinaabe family. This is a practice that is relatively common, particularly during the earlier colonial period, but still even in the time period in and around the revolution where native peoples would suffer a loss in their family and they would take a captive adoptee from another native community even from a, a settler community, and incorporate these young uh, captives into their family to replace lost loved ones. And John Tanner is brought into the family of an Odawa woman named Netnokwa, uh, uh, from what would now be Mackinac, uh, to replace her son who died from an illness. Um, and Netnokwa is a really prominent person. She's unusual in that she's a, a, a leader, a political leader. Um, known for her skills as a trader um, in the Mackinac area. Um, she leaves eventually 
Mackinac with John Tanner, who she's renamed Shasha Wabenese, the, the swallow, as her captive son. She leaves in part because she's afraid that uh, because Americans are beginning to expand into the Northwest Territories, it she, her son might be taken from her. So they migrate to what, what is uh, the Red River Valley and what would now be the Manitoba region of, of Canada uh, to engage in the fur trade. And at this time period, around the 17, into the 1700s, early 1800s, large numbers of Great Lakes native peoples would migrate seasonally uh, up to periods for a, a year or two into that region uh, to hunt. There is an expansion of the fur trade um, from uh, British traders operating out of Montreal, sometimes out of Hudson's Bay, where they make forays deep into the interior, what now be the northern Great Plains, in the Red River Valley area to hunt and process mostly beaver furs, um, but also increasingly buffalo and buffalo hides, uh, other fine furs. And so uh, uh, John Tanner moves out to this region with Nantanoqua. His mother was a prominent political leader among the Odawa who um, begins to reside out in this region sort of semi-permanently with the people who are coming for long sojourns of a year or two and then moving back to the Great Lakes. And she emerges as a lever, le- leader in this uh, Anishinaabe community, and he grows up as the son of a really prominent leader. He becomes fluent in Ojibwe, forgets how to speak English, uh, and marries eventually a, a Anishinaabe woman and has children with her. Um, but then around the period of the uh, 18, uh, end of the 18-teens, in the 1820s, he has a falling out with his wife. The fur trade begins to collapse in this region, and these two events kind of combine to make him think it's time for him to return home back to his native family. And chapter two kind of uh, follows that journey. Um, but the other, the other, I guess, thing I would do to explain his presence and why he's really significant is that he makes this journey from being a captive adoptee to an Anishinaabe. Uh, and it really captures this sort of way in which um, in this world that sort of predates the American Republic, things like race and identity uh, are not, are, are, are defined in different ways in terms of cultural understanding, in terms of uh, how you live your life, as opposed to things we think of now uh, when we think about race, which is phenotype, um, mm-hmm. and a classic story is that, uh, John Tanner as a young man in his teens, early teens, um, has a horse stolen and he sets out into the prairies of Saskatchewan to try to recover his horse. He's making his way toward an Assiniboine village. The Assiniboine people, um, are oftentimes allied with Anishinaabe people, but in this case, this person has stolen his horse and he's trying to find and recover it. He sees a young man out in a field. Um, hunting, he's laying down in the grass with a musket and is waiting for geese to pass over. He discharges his musket in order to shoot geese. John Tanner, seeing that he's momentarily vulnerable, rushes him and sort of they wrestle to the ground for control of the gun. And then this this contest is motivated by fear because the other people in this region would be Dakota, uh, enemies of both the Assiniboine and the Ojibwe. And as they're wrestling for the gun, the man on the ground starts to scream that he's an Assiniboine. John Tanner starts to scream that he's an Ojibwe, and they realize that they're sort of nominally in alliance, or the peoples are, and they stop wrestling, and they sort of agree to sort of uh, settle over the goose, and the young man who's in Assiniboine takes him back to his village. And one of the reasons that the encounter is stark and, and really interesting is that the man doesn't think, well, this is a white guy claiming to be an Ojibwe. Mm-hmm. Instead, he accepts John Tanner as an Ojibwe. He's dressed like an Ojibwe. He speaks Ojibwe language. Uh, he sort of knows the protocol of a, a peace and alliance between the Cinnaboy and Ojibwe people. And in that sense, this sort of frontier moment um, that leads John Tanner Jr. to be captured 
uh, and adopted is this moment where racial conflict between Native peoples and white people at the edge of the American Republic is very much being defined by race. But then this encounter in the Great Prairies uh, of Saskatchewan shows you that there's still an older indigenous world where encounter uh, and identity is defined by culture and lived uh, expression and kinship uh, and things that are not what we would think of as race these days. And so both these sorts of identities exist in the same time period and, and are inhabited by the same person. I think it's kind of a remarkable story. Mm, definitely. Um, so moving on to, to chapter three, uh, in this chapter, you write that Anishinaabe were, were, quote, no strangers to ambitious colonial powers, and that as the American Republic expanded, they simultaneously clung to their indigenous identities and struggled for inclusion and survivance within the U.S. So can you talk a little bit about that and specifically the role of uh, mixed race individuals and, and maybe especially women? Yeah, so this is the period when uh, the Americans are expanding into the Northwest Territories. The fur trade is still important in Northern Territories like Wisconsin, uh, or down to Wisconsin in Northern Michigan. But even in those regions, it's beginning to, people can see an end to it. Um, the, the, during this sort of time period, uh, the 1820s and 30s, Michigan goes, uh, well, I should back up and say, once the Erie Canal is completed in 1826, the Northern spaces of the Northwest Territory are much more integrated into the American economy. And so there's more land pressure in a way there hadn't been in the North. So uh, as that land pressure begins to exert itself, um, people, native people in the fur trade, uh, and in particular, the mixed race people who have grown up around the fur trade um, become aware of the need to make changes in order to accommodate the expansion of the United States. Uh, two things uh, uh, worth noting, there are lots of mixed race people in the fur trade in part because the fur trade has usually been the, about the interconnection between native communities and fur traders, most of whom would be men uh, who would, uh, from the French era through the um, British era into the American era, would be young men who were out engaged for long periods of time among native peoples. Uh, there were no women, uh, no white women or no settler women out in these regions. Most of the ways in which these men would find to create permanent connections with the native communities within which they worked were through intermarriage. Um, and this also had a sort of practical advantage for native peoples. It would connect them by kinship uh, to the fur traders um, who were operating in their territories. And because of this sort of necessity for um, interconnection in the fur trade, you ended up with a large class of people associated with the fur trade and fur trade companies who both had sort of an identity as native people, usually through their mothers, and an identity uh, with the settler trader community through their fathers. Um, the uh, fathers who were fur traders and who became involved in the trade and had mixed race children would incorporate their children into their fur trade practices. Their bilingualism, their biculturalism were assets in the fur trade. Um, and these were the people in particular who could see that the expansion of the American Republic was going to demand a new sort of skill set. That is not just the ability to sort of negotiate uh, kinship, uh, seasonal rounds of hunting and harvesting resources, but increasingly being able to deal with American officials and um, enter into legal contracts or relationships with the federal government over treaty status, things like that. And that that necessity would mean that their children needed to learn to read and write in English. And so you have uh, 
mostly mixed race people involved with the fur trade, but also connected to native peoples begin to request missionaries. Uh, missionaries in the Northwest Territories had not been as successful as they were in the Southeast. There hadn't been widespread acceptance. Of course, there have been missionaries dating all the way back to the French period who were Catholic. Uh, but um, the in the American period, uh, a lot of the communities that were really important fur trade communities, Mackinac and Michigan, La Pointe at the southern end of Lake Superior, they had really big established, uh, settled year-round communities with uh, fur trade villages and fur trade outposts and fur traders who had large mixed race families began to request missionaries who would come establish schools and missions in these areas and started to educate children. And for the most part, the people who were edu- interested in that education uh, were, were the mixed race children, the fur traders, um, and the fur traders were interested in getting their children uh, uh proficient in English reading and writing so they could, again, face the new world coming at them through America. Uh, But the missionaries who were sent out were usually young men from the East Coast, um, Protestant uh, young men who had uh, educations um, in religion uh, or general sort of college educations. Uh, They imagined they would uh, learn Ojibwe as they try to integrate with their missions into these communities. They found the language really difficult. They found integration into these communities really difficult as single men. And by and large, what they ended up doing was intermarrying among mixed race native women who were bilingual, many of whom had gone to missionary school that was first established in Mackinac. So they were both Christian converts, but also bilingual and bicultural. And so the American missionary system uh, expanded into a, uh, uh, Anishinaabe territory, in part by missionaries who themselves, not unlike the fur traders, intermarried with these native women who became really integral in terms of making the missions work. They were uh, they were the people who could communicate um, with Anishinaabe people, particularly the non-mixed race trading community, but the indigenous people. Uh, they were important for the domestic labor of keeping the mission alive, running the mission schools. Uh, in, in a sense, they were the backbone of the sort of American attempt to create a civilizing mission among native peoples to try to incorporate them into the United States. And the U.S. became utterly dependent on these mixed race native women for the expansion of these sort of mission complex into uh, the uh, Anishinaabe territory. I also wanted to ask you a little bit, since we're talking about missionaries, um, about their different take on identity. I found it interesting that as you state, um, you write at one point, quote, Rather than make distinctions according to race, the missionaries consistently use the concepts of civilized and uncivilized to serve as markers of identity. And then later you point out how the distinction between the two categories could be inconsistent. Can you talk a little bit about how? Sure. That that um, and that well, that tracks on to what I was mentioning earlier. That that um, identity for Native peoples, particularly before the coming of the United States isn't about race or phenotype as we would think about it. It's about kinship. And it's also about um, a sort of uh, kinship and, and sort of how you live your life. So in other words, uh, if you were um, a mixed race child, your father was a fur trader and your mother was an Anishinaabe person and you lived in the village around uh, the mission at Mackinac, Northern Michigan, if you stayed with your mother and your father permanently in that mission territory and, and learned to speak English, uh, learned to uh, were brought up into the fur trade and lived in that village permanently, you'd be thought of as a mixed race person. Uh, 
And in the context of uh, how the United States had earlier understood the difference between native and non-native, because you were Christian, because you spoke English, that would also qualify you as civilized. So that was the sort of marker um, that used to be applied uh, to people who are non-native. That's later came to signify whiteness or being white. Um, and in this time period, uh, rather than signifying white, it still signifies sort of a non-Indigenous identity, even though the person is very much steeped in their Indigenous identity, steeped in the fur trade, but they are living uh, with the fur trade community in a permanent village in Mackinac. If, on the other hand, you're uh, are the child of a mother who uh, had a child with a fur trader, but rather than attach themselves permanently to that trader in the mission at Mackinac, continue to live with your extended native family that would periodically come into the village of Mackinac, but then would disperse at different times of the year, in the hunting season in the winter, uh, harvesting wild rice in the spring, that you lived and traveled with your, your mother's extended family. Um, you'd be recognized as native, not as a mixed-race person. And you'd also be construed, at least by the colonial officials, state officials, as being sort of savage or civilized native. All these things are conflated as meaning the same thing. So that when you have the U.S. showing up, a lot of how native peoples are making distinctions in terms of what the U.S. would think of as race, are you white, are you not white, are you native, or are you white settler, instead are being parsed as are you civilized or not civilized. And this is a sort of crude sort of, like I said, amalgamation of meanings that are attached to, uh, are you civilized, meaning that you're uh, English-speaking or French-speaking, that you can read and write, that you live in a permanent structure in a village, as opposed to living in the bush with your mother, speaking strictly Ojibwe, um, living your life in a seasonal round with your extended family members. Uh, that would be a savage existence. And people were, were thinking of that as synonymous with indigenous. So this becomes a distinction between settled and unsettled. And the problem in terms of how it's not consistently used is that when American officials come into this region, they are increasingly trying to use markers like uh, white and non-white to distinguish between um, the settlers and the non-settlers of society. But they're also still sometimes using these old categories of savage and civilized. And you get a sort of mishmash in terms of the language that shows up, both among missionaries writing about these communities, but also uh, colonial state officials who write among these communities. And usually with the indigenous communities themselves, they use the term uh, civilized when they want to refer to their mixed race relatives. Um, and they sort of associate with that moniker civilized that they have rights uh, that they as indigenous people don't have rights to the civil society, participation in the civil society, of the Republic rights to vote, um, rights to serve on a jury rights to possibly even serve as a magistrate or in public office. Um, they would uh, consider themselves part of the American Republic of citizens, as opposed to non-citizens, which is what the native peoples uh, would think of themselves as being members of indigenous nations, not part of the American Republic. So it's a sort of continuum between the sort of categories of race on phenotype and also these older categories about race that are linked to notions about um, the civilization, civilization and discovery and things like that. So you begin chapter four with the story of the 1837 murder of Alfred Aitken. And you discuss how this murder and the trial that ensued reveal important insights like the, like the, still relative weakness of the U.S. government in the Northwest, and yet again, the instability of race. So if you can, discuss the incident and why it's so helpful in understanding that that particular moment in time. 
Sure. This builds off these these um, things we've been talking about in terms of race uh, versus thinking about somebody as being a savage or civilized. And the story of Alfred Aiken, he's a mixed-race child um, of William Aiken. William Aiken is a um, Scottish-born trader who, who immigrates to first Canada and then into the Great Lakes uh, before the revolution. Uh, he is grandfathered into American citizenship status as a lot of uh, the Canadian and French born people who are permanent inhabitants of the Great Lakes are post-revolution when that territory is transferred into the jurisdiction of the United States. Uh, William Aiken is a prominent trader uh, operating out of Sandy Lake, which is this region uh, in the headwaters region of the upper Mississippi in between Lake Superior in the Mississippi River. Uh, he's married to Beshi Bananaquad, uh, the striped cloud, um, who also is named Magda Aiken, but she's baptized, but she doesn't speak English and she never went to uh, a missionary church. So she only speaks Ojibwe, even though she is nominally mixed race. So she's kind of in this more nebulous category. Um, she's a mixed race person, but unlike most of the mixed race people associated with the fur trade, she doesn't speak English, wasn't educated in the mission system. Uh, she's very connected to her indigenous family at Sandy Lake. And that's in fact why William has married with her uh, and is operating out of that village because it gives him the access to her network of kin and village relationships. His son, uh, um, his son Alfred is his oldest son. He is incorporated into the fur trade and in, in 1837 is murdered uh, in his winter quarters by a, a native man um, who uh, murders him. And everybody knows who's connect, who's committed the murder uh, because the community is, is almost exclusively native or, so with the fur trade. Um, so everybody knows who did it. They knew what happened. And uh, William Aiken is furious and he wants the man captured, but the missionary associated with uh, the village at Sandy Lake insists that because this region in 1837 uh, is now part of the, the American Republic, it's been created as Wisconsin territory. Uh, the Michigan has just entered the union as a state uh, because of this. He convinces Aiken that they need to capture this man and not submit him to native justice, which could involve murder, but it might also involve different other forms of punishment. But they, a missionary convinces William that he needs to bring the man to justice to stay in trial for murder. They capture uh, the person, um, uh, Chico Wakasin, who, who, uh, the big birch who, who has killed, um, Alfred, uh, they bring him to, um, William Tolliver, who's the governor of, uh, what becomes the Wisconsin Territory and Minnesota Territory. Um, he is put into uh, the American legal system. He's put on trial at Prairie du Chien, which will be in and around what we now think of as Green Bay, which is where the westernmost sort of circuit court of the United States Republic um, is extended to. Uh, he's on trial, um, put on trial for the murder of Alfred Aiken. And the jurors at this point... Um, who are uh, mostly recent immigrants from the West Coast uh, in a rejection of, of the idea that I talked about before, which is that we could think about these mixed-race um, individuals as being civilized and therefore qualifying as white. Recent arrivals from the East Coast see a mixed-race Indian, and they think that's an Indian, um, not a white person, not a settler. And so the jury decides that William, uh, or that Alfred Aiken, rather, the individual who was murdered was native, um, even though he was mixed race, and that the murderer is native, and therefore neither of them have standing in an American court of law because native peoples aren't citizens of the United States. And so they release the murderer. 
And this sets off an uproar among the mixed race community and the fur trade community that are really important in a territory like Wisconsin, because there are very few American officials. There's really no law enforcement. There's no even military uh, power that can be sort of exerted into this area. And so the state and federal officials really rely on the fur traders who are the most prominent um, financially, politically powerful people in the region to incorporate, to incorporate, help them incorporate the, the space into the, the Republic. And part of that bargain is that they're going to count these mixed race families that these men have created as settler families, that is, as white families. And this is a, considered a violation of that bargain. And so it sets off the whole region in an uproar on what this means. Um, there's a lot of resistance. And the chapter is really about that struggle as the mixed race community decides that they want to be counted um, as as citizens and as white, and they want their rights respected. And that means, even in this case, they want the murderer uh, to be held accountable. And they want the mixed race child of William Aiken to be counted as a settler. And for his uh, his murder to be um, solved according to the legal system as opposed to native customary law. And it's about that struggle for how you're going to define inclusion an exclusion within the Republic along lines of race when it comes to things that are as tricky as indigeneity. It's uh, racial categories that are not inside the normal black, white racial categories in, in the Republic. And they're even more tricky because the racial categories uh, among native peoples themselves are blurry and construed among lines that aren't you know, race or phenotype, but rather about culture and lineage and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so if the, if the governments of the various, Northwestern states deemed native peoples, as you write, unfit for inclusion within the social and political boundaries of the Republic, ultimately. Uh, they also made the region inhospitable for, for black residents. Um, so can you, can you discuss how white settler government in the Northwest came to bear on the free and enslaved black Americans who ended up there? Sure. So the, the Alfred Aiken case really sparks, a, like I said, a, a backlash among the settlers who, uh, in, in the case of Alfred Aiken, they're not his murder goes free, but the citizens um, of of uh, the mixed race citizens of this case file petitions. They they call a petition like the mixed race petition of the mixed race citizen Ojibwe citizens, and they basically they demand to be uh, accepted uh, as citizens. Um, and for the most part, they're successful. They manage to um, win the right to vote in places like uh, Wisconsin and Michigan territory, which is contested uh, because of the racial disqualification of non-white electors not being allowed. They insist on the right to vote and are given that right. Um, They are essentially pushing back against the Aiken decision, demanding the right to vote and participate in civil society. Um, But as I said, it's it's a bit uneven. They've won the right to vote um, when it's been contested in Michigan, Wisconsin, but they lost the case with Alfred in the court. Um, And so these things are still being sort of hotly contested. And in the fifth chapter, I explore instances in, in which um, there are, uh, the right to vote is being contested in, in this case, in a court case in, in Ohio, um, where a mixed race native person is trying to vote, his ability to vote is being um, uh, contested. And he ultimately, this, this person under consideration wins the right to vote. The, the Ohio Supreme Court decides that he can count um, as a qualified elector, even though he's of mixed race that is not entirely white. But the dissenting opinion makes note that um, the, reason, the, the reason they're pushing back and saying no is that if you begin to establish 
um, mixed race Native people as qualified electors would be obliged to uh, grant the same uh, privileges to African-American descendant people who are free or mixed race African-American descendant people who are free. And that this is something that the settlers of the Northwest Territories would find objectionable. And for those reasons, while they could tolerate mixed race Native people, they don't want to tolerate and be forced to integrate uh, free black citizens into the ostensible free territories of the Northwest Territory, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, etc. Um, and so the case law goes back and forth like this. There are pushbacks against this and reflecting that pushback that allowing Native mixed race people to be citizens would open the floodgates to allowing um Free black people to exercise the privileges of citizenship. You have states that begin to enact laws specifically to prevent uh, free black people from inhabiting or from exercising the privileges associated with citizenship. In uh, all the Northwest Territory states, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, the states uh, establish essentially black laws that are laws that require free black citizens immigrating into the state to register with the justice of the peace in the county where they reside and post a bond, uh, as well as proof of their uh, freedom, proof that they're not uh, runaway slaves. Um, Similarly, anybody who's going to employ a free black person is required to um, check make sure that that person has posted a bond and proved their citizenship. Otherwise they will suffer fines. Um, and all these are laws that are meant to require and discourage uh, black immigration into the Northwest territories. And there are lots of places where these laws are evaded. Um, and even the, the state lawmakers recognize that that's happening. That's laws are being evaded and there are pockets of black citizens throughout the Northwest territory, but they continue trying to enact them and tighten them because they want to exclude um, free black people from, from the Northwest Territories. And that exclusion is kind of baked into the cake because any of these free state territories that have been formed through the Northwest Ordinance as free states through the North, uh, you know, through the Northwest Ordinance, um, the stipulation is that the free states in the Northwest Territories have to have a fugitive slave clause. That is, they have to guarantee that any escaped slave persons who, uh, who freed themselves by uh, leaving the, the slave south into the Northwest uh, can be returned or have to be returned by law. So these two things are interconnected, this sort of uh, creation of white, free white territories and the guarantee of, uh, uh, of white property ownership of enslaved black people in the South are interconnected. So in your epilogue, you note that, quote, stealing native land to generate wealth for white citizens of the U.S. is a feature, not a bug in the system of governance created by the U.S. and North America. So can you explain what that means, especially in light of the, the recent events that you discuss uh, in that part of the book, is, you know, Standing sure. Rock, et cetera? Yeah. So when I was finishing the first drafts of this that was going out to reviewers, um, you know, I, I had stumbled in this connection that was pretty striking to me, the way that, that I, I was interested in looking at um, – how the Northwest Territory states were handling questions of citizenship and race as it related to Native people. Uh, I had found this murder of Alfred Aiken, and through that murder, I had found these different um, trials where the right to vote was being contested. Um, And in each of these cases, um, issues about blackness came up in the decision-making process. The same was true uh, with the Alfred Aiken case, which we didn't mention because it was, wasn't relevant to our discussion, but one of the persons testifying on his behalf was a mixed-race person who was black and Indian, and his testimony was thrown out for that reason. And so um, all these cases that I'm looking at, I'm finding that while I sort of went in to explore 
uh, how the Republic was handling the issue of citizenship and mixed race identity for Native people, because there were so many mixed race Native people in this region because of the fur trade, that this was also being very much wrapped up in how the Republic was understanding its relationship to race and, and free black people or enslaved black people. Uh, and that these things were completely interconnected. And it was so obvious to me that, that even in places like Ohio or Michigan, um, which were created as free states, there was a lot of investment uh, in policing black bodies through these black laws, um, in excluding black people from civil society through these same black laws, uh, in excluding uh, the opportunity of black freedom from uh, liberating themselves by moving into free territories through the um, fugitive slave clause. So that all these things were features of how the republic was forming, ostensibly a free republic, uh, but one that was formed with a sort of infrastructure designed to limit black freedom or minimum police it and tax it. At the same time, you have uh, this republic, which is really being formed and, uh, and creating the infrastructure that allows us to create places like Michigan and Ohio is entirely um, happening through the dispossession of Native people. Treaties are used to extinguish title to land that's Native land that they don't want to give up, but that they're forced to give up. That land is then transferred into the public domain of the United States and sold uh, at a subsidized rate to white settlers who can then turn it into uh their private property to homesteads. That process of acquiring homesteads um, is, is a is this is subsidized also in part because the uh, native people can only sell their land to to the federal government. They can't sell it to individuals. They can't hold on to it and then re-release it by leasing it as a timber property, anything like that. Um, they are forced by the federal government to give up this land through treaty sessions that force them to give it up at cut rate cut rate costs, and that cut rate savings is then passed on to settlers through the Northwest Ordinance. Um, so that you're sort of subsidizing uh, white expansion, the creation of white private property, um, and, and the creation of infrastructure, public infrastructure, because the same um, land extinction is used to do things like fund public railroads, uh, fund public colleges, um, the infrastructure of the Republic in terms of the, the civil society, like railroads, canals, public universities, all funded through land seizures, um, private property, infrastructure of the Republic, the creation of townships, that are amalgamations of home, home homesteads that incorporate and enter the union, also subsidized by the dispossession of Native people. So these two things, this sort of um, policing and taxing of black bodies, this sort of uh, treaty uh, provisions that are sort of forced on Native people, then treaties are violated um, time and time again or reconstrued um, so they benefit um, the settler community at the expense of the native community. These things are things that I'm confronted with as I'm writing this history. And at the same time, there's an explosion of violence in Ferguson over uh, Michael Brown, a community where the black population is being way over-policed, over-taxed, over-regulated. And the result has been this violence. And then at the same time I'm writing, and this is happening, the Standing Rock protest is happening where uh, the uh, no doubt box, the pipeline is, is, uh, an oil pipeline is going to go through Standing Rock Reservation, which would potentially endanger um, that community through oil spills, this big uh, water table that would be exposed to the danger. And the federal government decides that Native people, even though by treaty rights, should be able to exclude that pipeline, they're going to use eminent domain and put the pipeline in anyway. And there's a massive protest about that that um, uh, 
comes together around Sandy Rock. And so these things are still happening in the Republic and they're a result of this sort of historical legacy that, that um, we see through American expansion, through the treaty process, through kind of this legacy of dispossession and re- regulating policing back black bodies as part of American expansion in order to facilitate that dispossession. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, before we begin to before we begin to wrap up, uh, is there anything you think we we missed or didn't talk enough about? Um, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, I guess I would just kind of conclude by saying one of the my first book was really about this sort of power and permanence of indigenous people in the early contact history of North America. How uh, there are huge numbers of native people that you're probably not aware of through your standard high school education, public high school education, um, that were there well into the period of the American Republic that you didn't think of. They were really important for things that are uh, like the Seven Years' War and the American Revolution and the fur trade. You know, the American people, American Indian people who were really important in charge, they were there in large numbers. They controlled vast swaths of the interior of North America well into the uh, early 1800s. And my first book was about that sort of uh, hidden indigenous history that you know about, the importance of Native people for the, the first couple hundred years of history after the arrival of Europeans. And this book is about this sort of rapid transition where American expansion actually um, brings it into that older social world and really kind of um, creates the, the sort of modern infrastructure of America. We don't realize how much that infrastructure is built on converting native land and wealth into the infrastructure and the wealth of the Republic and the citizens of the Republic. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. Um, so, so, I want to try something new, at least for me, and and have you recommend a, a new book in Native American studies that you think our listeners should check out. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I absolutely I, I can read just one or two. Oh, as many as you like. Okay, uh, two well, is fine. Two off the top of my head that I have just read that are phenomenal. Uh, one is a book by Elena Roberts called "I've Been Here All the While: Black Freedom on Native Land," and it's about. Um, the essentially about um, black Choc- black Choctaws and Chickasaws, uh, black Choctaws in particular, and Choctaw freedmen who, with the Choctaw people, are removed in that trail of tears that Americans do know about the Southeast Indian removal that we briefly mentioned. Um, the black freedmen and the black Choctaws who move out west with the Choctaw community. I say black Choctaws; they're intermarried Choctaws and and. Uh, free African-American peoples who are also constituted a subset of the Choctaw community. And then the Choctaw freedmen who were uh, slaves owned by the Choctaws because they were slave-owning people and that were freed post-revolution and incorporated into their society, keeping in mind that indigenous nations, even after the Civil War, are not American citizens. And they sort of are within American territory, but they are indigenous nations. And this is a story about the that community, which um, is the community out of which springs the, um, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And so recently the Tulsa race uh, massacre has been in our public consciousness through, you know, popular culture, also through the history becoming more widely known. And this is a story about how, um, in part, um, not only this fascinating story about uh, black Choctaws and black Indian history, but also about how a black community emerges in Oklahoma. That's really successful because unlike other parts of the South in the civil war, uh, these people are compensated. They don't get the mule, but they get their 40 acres as part of the compensation. It's a phenomenal story. Really interesting. Very little known really deserves to be heard. And then another 
a quick book I'll be short is uh, Paul Barba, a book called The Country of the Cursed and the Driven, Slavery in the Texas Borderlands, which is just a really fascinating book on uh, slave systems that have really shaped uh, what would now be Texas from the sort of pre-colonial period with the uh, uh, indigenous communities, the Caddo, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, or the Caddo, the, the, the who people become the Comanches, Wichita, the Apaches, and then into the colonial period with the Spanish, and then post-colonial period with Americans who bring the slaving regimes of the Cotton South into the same place. And it's about how all these different slave regimes, from indigenous ones to colonial ones to American ones, have really given shape to sort of modern Texas. Um, and these are both really excellent books in Native history. Um, books that are pretty recent that tell stories that maybe readers aren't super familiar with. Sounds fascinating. Thanks for the recommendations. Um, and finally, uh, Michael Witkin, always our last question. What's next for you? What's in the works? I am writing uh, a book called The Battle for North America, which is a indigenous history of the Seven Years' War, the American Revolution, and the War of 1812. I think these are three uh, really big interconnected struggles for the control of indigenous North America between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. And I think that um, these these big conflicts which fit into sort of American history also have a really, uh, are to be properly understood, need to be thought through from an indigenous perspective. And I'm working on a book that does that. Well, that sounds great as well. That sounds fascinating. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thanks for the conversation. I appreciate it.